Well, hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us uh, live if you're listening right now or uh, whenever you're listening via podcast uh, or on Rumble. Uh, Great to have you along with us in any case. This week we're going to be talking about, actually, I always start off the show um, doing the gospel from the Sunday that began the week, right, which uh, we've been doing the ordinary form readings, uh, so that would be the 15th Sunday of Pentecost, and or no, 15th Sunday of Ordinary Time, I'm sorry. And I'm also, later in, in the program, I'm going to do the um, look at the gospel also from the extraordinary form, which was the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, hence my confusion. Um, anyway, uh, there are a couple of themes that actually relate to each other in those gospels, and we're going to explore that, and those are the very important themes of anger and forgiveness, okay, something that a lot of people, uh, a lot of people struggle with both those things. Also, uh, later on, we're going to be looking at the, the real and present spiritual danger of taking the position that Francis is not the Pope, okay? And I'm going to, uh, as promised last week, share a list of 10 things that any parish priest can institute at uh, Mass, the Novus Ordo Mass, this Sunday to jumpstart a genuine liturgical renewal in his parish. But uh, a list of things that don't require any special permissions or, or meetings or special training or or a single word of Latin or spending one red cent. Okay, so <laughs> all that's coming up. But first, uh, the gospel for the 15th Sunday in Ordinary Time, taken from Luke 10, 25 through 37. And it's the, the greatest commandment and the parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer came forward to test Jesus by asking, Teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But because the man wished to justify himself, he asked, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him and beat him and then went off, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be traveling along that same road, but when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A Levite likewise came to that spot and saw him, and he too passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was traveling along that road came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds after having poured oil and wine on them. Then he brought him upon his own animal to an inn and looked after him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Look after him, and when I return I will repay you for anything more that you might spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He answered, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. And we're talking here about love of neighbor. And the expert in the religious law was quoting uh, the Old Testament. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19:18, Love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So he correctly understood that the law demanded both total devotion to God and love of neighbor. 
Uh, and this similar uh, episode appears in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. He who hopes to be saved must love God with all his heart and his neighbor as himself. And uh, when the doctor of the law asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus answered with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And parables are fictional stories that Jesus used to challenge his listeners' preconceptions. See, the, 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 there was a deep hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Jews saw themselves as, as the pure descendants of Abraham, while the Samaritans were a, a mixed race that was produced when the, the Jews from the northern kingdom of Israel uh, returned from exile in Babylon and intermarried with the Gentiles in Samaria. So to this Jewish lawyer, this expert in the law, the, the person least likely to act correctly would be the, the Samaritan. In fact, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. When, when Jesus you know, asked the question, you know, who was a neighbor to the wounded man, he replied, not the Samaritan, but the one who showed him mercy, right? speaking generically. So this, this attitude of the doctor of the law betrayed his lack of of the very thing that he himself said that the law commands above all, which is love. Now, in the parable, the love shown by the Samaritan, first off, we see that it's, it's genuine, that he felt compassion in his heart for the wounded man and had a, a real sympathy with him in his uh, situation, in his misfortune. So he stopped right away when he perceived this poor man, uh, went up to him, whereas the priest and the Levite both passed by just ignoring the the guy's pitiful condition. And because the Samaritan's love was real, it was practical. So he wished to help the poor man, and he did everything in his power to alleviate his sufferings and to save his life. He interrupted his journey, tended the man's uh, wounds himself that day, and when his business called him away, he left him in charge of the innkeeper, paying in advance for his room and board and promising to return and make up any difference. So, so genuine love and practical love. Lastly, uh, the love that he showed was universal, right? He, he knew the wounded man was a Jew, which was the enemy of his people. And, and he knew that under similar circumstances, a Jew was un, would have been unlikely to help a Samaritan. Uh, all the same, he takes pity on him. He forgives the enmity shown to the Samaritans by the Jews. And, and in this uh, poor fellow who fell among robbers, he only sees... Uh, a poor fellow creature, a, a, a brother, and he helped him as such. So by telling this story, um, our Lord teaches us that every man is our neighbor and that lo uh, our love ought to be real and practical and universal. Love God and love your neighbor. That was an Old Testament teaching. Love your enemies, right? That is the deeper understanding that Christ brought. And there is also a deeper meaning, an um, allegorical uh, interpretation that the fathers of the church gave to the parable, where they would see Jesus himself as the Good Samaritan, which was proved by his treatment of um, you know the human race, represented by the the man who's been robbed and wounded. You know, uh, uh, sin and the devil are the robbers who have despoiled us of our robe of innocence and all our supernatural gifts, and grievously wounded us in our natural gifts. We have a, a uh, a weakened will and a darkened intellect because of sin. And so man lay by the road, so to speak, helpless and, and weak and half dead, uh, still possessing natural life, yes, 
but having lost the supernatural life of grace as well as the prospect of eternal life, and so powerless to raise himself from the misery of sin by any of his own efforts. Neither the priest nor the Levite, representing the sacrifice and the law of the Old Covenant, neither could help him or heal his wounds. They only made him realize more fully his helpless condition. And then the Son of God, the the real good Samaritan, moved by compassion, comes down from heaven to help a pitiful fallen man living at enmity with God's, healing uh, his wounds with the wine of his most precious blood and the oil of his grace. And, and took him to the inn, which is the church. Uh, and when he left this earth to return to heaven, like the Samaritan who gave the innkeepers the two coins, <clears throat> the, uh, Jesus gave to the, uh, the apostles and their successors, the guardians of the church, the twofold treasure of his doctrine and his law, uh, or doctrine rather, and his grace, and ordered them to tend the, the still weak man, which, you know, you and me, in other words, until he himself should come back and reward everyone according to his works. So this this inconceivable love um, of the incarnate Son of God for all men is the great reason why we ought to love our neighbor and even our enemy. So how do we apply this parable to our life today? Well, the doctor of the law viewed Jesus' hypothetical wounded man in the story as a topic for discussion. Uh, The robbers in the parable treated him as an object to exploit. Uh, The priest and the Levite as as a problem to be avoided. It was only the Samaritan that treated him as as a person, right? Not not an object, but a person to love. And, you know, in the case of the priest and the Levite, you can see what a hateful thing lack of compassion really is. And on the other hand, the example of the Samaritan shows how noble uh, and beautiful it is to have a heart full of compassion, and a desire to help those in need. The question is, which heart is mine most like? That of the priest or that of the Samaritan? Do I feel compassion for others in their misfortunes? Do I ever uh, feel a guilty pleasure when some evil falls, uh, you know, certain persons or persons? Right? In the parable, Jesus illustrates the, the three principles of loving our neighbor. First off, that lack of love is easy to justify, but it's never right. Secondly, our neighbor is anyone who's in need, regardless of race, creed, social background, etc. <clears throat> Number three, the theological virtue of love isn't just some fuzzy feeling. It's an act of the will. Willful love. You choose to love. And love of neighbor means acting to meet the person's need. And so, I mean, wherever you are, wherever you live, there's going to be needy people nearby. And there's no good reason to, to refuse to help them. Jesus asked the the doctor of the law, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he answered the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Even if you can't, you know, uh, give them money, you, you can visit, you can show sympathy and especially pray for them. And that's no nonsense. All right, coming back with more. Actually, uh, another gospel from the Extraordinary Forum, also talking about 10 ways to jumpstart liturgical renewal in your parish, and lots more when we return on No Nonsense Catholic here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with me.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and uh, continuing with the gospel from last Sunday, but this time from the extraordinary form. And we're going to look at the way the two of them um, relate one to the other. And the gospel for the extraordinary form mass last Sunday, the fifth after Pentecost, uh, the reading uh, is from Matthew 5, 20 through 24, so from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, I tell you, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that your ancestors were told you shall not kill, and anyone who kills will be subject to judgment. But I say this to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever addresses his brother in an insulting way will answer for it before the Sanhedrin. And whoever calls his brother a fool will be liable to the fires of Gehenna. Therefore, when offering your gift at the altar, if you should remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go first to be reconciled with your brother. Then return and offer your gift. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So the Pharisees were, they were the Puritans of their day. They identified 600 and some odd uh, rules and regulations in the Old Testament and considered themselves perfect because they observed each and every one of them. They were exacting, they were scrupulous in their attempt to follow the Mosaic law. So how could Jesus reasonably call his followers, and that includes you and me, by the way, uh, to, be, to have greater obedience than, than the Pharisees? Well, here's how. The Pharisees' weakness was that they were content to obey the laws outwardly without allowing God to change their hearts. So Jesus was saying, therefore, that the quality of our goodness should be greater than that of the Pharisees, who looked pious but were far from the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that one of his great uh, insults, really, I guess that's the only way to put it, uh, was when he called them whitened sepulchers. Or I shouldn't say an insult, I guess a wake-up call. You know, you're like, you're like a whitewashed tomb that's, that's beautiful without but inside is full of corruption. You know, God judges the heart as well as the deeds. Only God can judge the heart because only he can see the heart. And it's in the heart that our real allegiance lies. So we should just uh, be as concerned about our attitudes that people don't see as the actions that they do see. Now, this is also this gospel. It's another example of, of Jesus quoting the old law, the Old Testament. You know, you have heard it said or you have heard it was written and then giving his own teaching with authority. But I say to you, so you understand, he's not doing away with with the law, and and he's really not adding to it either. What's happening is that he's giving a fuller understanding of the law and why God uh, made the law in the first place. Right? For for example, in Exodus, uh, Moses says in the Ten Commandments, do not murder. Well, and Jesus goes on to teach that you shouldn't even be angry enough to murder because we've already committed murder in our hearts if we allow that, you know, our anger to, to escalate like that. You know, the Pharisees knew the law and, and, you know, having not literally murdered somebody, they felt that they had perfectly kept the law. But they were angry enough with Jesus that they would, uh, you know, shortly after this episode, they would start to plot his death even though they, they wouldn't, you know, do the dirty work themselves. But the, the point is that we can miss the intent of God's word 
uh, when we you know, read his rules for living, if we don't try and understand what underlies them and why they were instituted in the first place. You know, in other words, it's possible for us to keep God's rules, but to close our eyes to his intent. So obviously murder is a terrible sin, but anger can be a great sin too. Uh, you know, whenever it also violates God, God's commandment to love. And, you know, I, I guess the question is, what is anger? See, at its most basic, anger is an involuntary uh, emotional response to some displeasing situation or event. So, oh, that guy cut me off, right? Uh, and, but as long as it's limited to that involuntary response, it's, it's normal, right? It's a normal reaction. And morally speaking, it's a neutral one. But, you know, so clearly not ang- all anger is sinful. Uh, in Exodus twenty three nineteen, Moses is angry when he so- sees the, the unfaithfulness and the idolatry of uh, the people. Uh, in fact, Thomas Aquinas tells us that in, in that kind of a situation, it would be a sin not to be angry. Uh, when Jesus was criticized for healing the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, he was angry. <clears throat> Scripture says, Pardon me. Scripture says, looking at them with anger, he was saddened at the hardness of their hearts. It's Mark 3, 5. Uh, St. Paul famously puts anger in perspective um, in this way. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Uh, Now, the Scripture says in the Proverbs, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. And so, and I know I use this example a lot, but just look at social media. You know, I was brought up to believe that uh, everybody had a right to express his own opinion and to be treated with dignity and respect, right? Uh, I remember once on The Rifleman, um, young Mark McCain had a, uh, a disagreement with one of his schoolmates. And he says, I hate that skinny. And, and Lucas says, hate? Isn't that a strong word to use? For somebody you just disagree with, right? And yet, uh, you know, we see that uh, all the time. Like I say, I, I was raised <clears throat> that everybody is, um, you know, uh, has a right to express their opinion and a right to be respected. You respect the person, whether you respect his opinion or not. You know, but, but at the same time, you know, as a Christian, I realized, well, if Jesus had demanded his rights, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. And where would we be? Now, my silver-haired old mother used to say, when you can't agree, just drop the subject. There's no reason to be bitter just because you know you're right, <laughs> which is not bad advice. But uh, as Catholic Christians, we've got to be careful of our responses to the Pharisees in our own lives. Uh, because although our position may be right, our accompanying attitudes might be wrong. You know, there's lots of well-meaning Catholics on Facebook or, or other social media who wind up giving the church a black eye, not because they're wrong or because their position's wrong, but because they forget what St. Peter said, that you should always be prepared to offer an explanation to anyone who asks you to justify the hope that's in you, in you, but do it with gentleness and with respect. Right? We're not trying to win arguments. We're trying to win hearts and minds. So when you're trying to defend the faith, you shouldn't sink to the level of the people that oppose you. All right? uh, and, and just generally, there's lots and lots of irritations in this life. And they can become prime opportunities for the world, the flesh, and the devil to lead us into evil passions. You mustn't allow your anger to become a seething, brooding bitterness. That is a dangerous emotion that always threatens to leap out of control 
uh, when you give in to it. That's what leads to violence and, and emotional uh, hurts and, and increased stress, both mental and physical, uh, as well as spiritual damage as well. This is what we would call willful anger, okay? You, you can choose to be angry the same as you can choose to love. And choosing anger that way, this willful anger, that's what makes it one of the seven deadly sins. Willful anger will keep you from developing a spirit that's pleasing to God. Now, meekness, the moral virtue that is opposed to willful anger, is, is more than an exterior virtue. Now, in light of what we've just been talking about, ask yourself this question. Have you ever been proud of yourself that you didn't lash out and say what was really on your mind? Uh, you know, when you didn't make that sarcastic remark or, or post that uh, snide comment on social media. Meekness, that is self-control, really is its own reward. But pride, on the other hand, is another deadly sin. And Jesus is saying is that we're going to be held accountable even for our interior attitudes. So Christ wants us to practice self-control, but, but thought control as well. Right? This is you have to love your neighbors yourself, and that suggests that there is such a thing as a proper kind of self-love. All right, in the final verse of the uh, Extraordinary Form Gospel for the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, Jesus says, When offering your gift at the altar, you should remember, if you should remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and first go to be reconciled with your brother, then return to offer your gift. See, broken human relationships can hinder our ultimate relationship with God. So if we have a problem or a grievance, you know, with a friend or vice versa, we should resolve that, uh, you know, as soon as possible. And we're hypocrites, hypocrites if we say that we love God but hate others. And our inner attitudes um, towards others reflect our relationship with God. As St. John says, if someone says, I love God, but at the same time hates his brother, he's a liar. For whoever does not love the brother whom he has seen cannot love the God whom he has not seen. That's from 1 John 4.20. And, and what our Lord's addressing in the gospel is the ever-present problem of unforgiveness. You know, the late father Al Lauer, God rest his soul, uh, used to say, when I was first ordained a priest, I believed that over 50% of all problems were due to unforgiveness. And then he said, after 10 years in ministry, I revised my estimate, maintained 75 to 80% of all health, marital, family, and financial problems came from unforgiveness. And then he said, after more than 20 years in ministry, I concluded that over 90% of all problems are rooted in unforgiveness. Uh, Father Lauer um, was the founder of Presentation Ministries, and he literally wrote the book on forgiveness. And I'm not kidding. He actually wrote a book called The Book on Forgiveness. Uh, but before we can understand, you know, what forgiveness uh, really is, I think we need to understand what it's not. Because many people have a false idea about forgiveness. First off, forgiveness does not uh, mean ignoring or excusing um, other people's sins, you know, the, the, the bad things that they have done to us. In, in fact, the truth is that the more we forgive, the more we love the sinner, the more we hate the sin. And likewise, meekness is not weakness. And forgiveness doesn't mean that you have to be a doormat. 
You know, I, I think there's plenty of folks who, who don't think they need our forgiveness and therefore they don't want it, right? You forgive me, that's a laugh. I haven't done anything that I need to be forgiven for. Who do you think you are? Forgiveness doesn't mean suffering continued abuse. Sometimes the cardinal virtue of prudence uh, uh, demands that you get away from someone who is verbally abusive or, or especially physically dangerous, you know, maybe for your own sake or, or for your, your family or children. And that means that sometimes we have to forgive someone with whom we cannot or should not be in contact. So perhaps even someone who's passed on. Because, you know, even if he can't be reconciled, you can still forgive from your heart. But I, I think the larger point is that uh, forgiveness is not optional for a Christian. And our good Lord wouldn't require it as, of us if it were not for our ultimate good. For, forgiveness and meekness, which is controlling anger, are related. We're going to talk about that uh, more on the other side of this little break. Uh, when we come right back with more No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Welcome back to No-Nonsense Catholic. A final word on anger and forgiveness uh, as related to these two Gospels that we read Um uh, just in the last couple of segments, Father Al Lauer said that Jesus insists on forgiveness because unforgiveness is poison. Unforgiveness puts a person in a self-made prison where they cannot act freely. And St. John Paul II said, forgiveness is the restoration of freedom to oneself. It is the key to our prison cell held in our own hand. So forgiveness is good for the forgiver as much as for the forgiven. And forgiveness and meekness, the virtue that's opposed to anger, both flow from the, the great commandments of love of God and love of neighbor. And that's no nonsense. Uh, okay, so moving on. <clears throat> I noticed last week on the Terry and Jesse show that they talked about an article by Shane Schetzel of Complete Christianity offering 10 tips for renewal at any Catholic parish. And he suggested, for example, that the uh, priest only celebrate ad orientum, that is, facing the altar as opposed to the people, um, that, he, that the priest should insist that the faithful only receive communion kneeling and on the tongue, that uh, they should ban altar girls and extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and so on. Uh, you know, among other things, and and all of which are fine ideas, and I have, in fact, seen them work well in Novus Ordo parishes, although, you know, such parishes are uh, admittedly as rare as hen's teeth. Uh, this kind of thing has worked and worked well. And while technically speaking, all of those decisions are within the purview of the pastor of the parish, they are the kinds of changes that many people will not understand and many bishops will not tolerate, you know, because when the complaints start coming into the chancery office, uh, uh, let me just say that in 25 years of apostolic work, I've seen plenty of priests get canceled by their bishops, you know, for less. And so one of the reasons I was talking last week about uh, why you should um, 
assist at the traditional Latin Mass at least once. Uh, but I know that uh, regularly assisting at the extraordinary form of the Mass is not possible uh, uh, for many, if not most, devout Catholics, and not even desirable for some of them. You know, devout Catholics that, that long for a, a reverent liturgy. And so I promised last week that I would share uh, a list of 10 things that any Novus Ordo priest can institute, and, you know, this coming Sunday, and, and jumpstart a genuine liturgical renewal in his parish, but without stirring up a lot of opposition and controversy, at least hopefully. And, and you prefer, because these propositions, they don't require any special permissions. You don't even have to have any meetings, you don't have any special training. Nobody has to say a single word in Latin. Nobody has to spend uh, any money. Uh, but and to, let me give you some context. I visited Australia a number of years ago, maybe six, eight years ago. And it started, I was invited to give a keynote address at a uh, annual fundraising dinner <clears throat> for the Brisbane Oratory and Formation. But before I knew it, I mean, people found out that I was flying to Australia. And, and um, you know, before I was done, I had agreed to give nine, nine presentations over the course of, of seven days at various locations in Brisbane and Sydney and Melbourne including speaking at at the cathedral, at a Catholic college, on a live radio broadcast, and several Catholic parishes. Now, during that week was memorable, hectic, and and a great blessing. But I had the pleasure of speaking at both Latin Rite and Eastern Rite parishes. And as a traditional, you know, Latin Rite Catholic, it was a humbling reminder that the Mass is a reality that, that transcends the Rite. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many valid liturgical rites, you know, and liturgical traditions in the church. You know, it's well for traditionalists to remember that the Missal of Pius V was never imposed on the Eastern rites of the church, or even on Latin rites that had been around for more than 200 years at the time. You know, the truth is that the one Paschal mystery of Christ has always been celebrated in the church according to a multitude of rites. And so, according to the, uh, the compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, quote, the unfathomable riches of the mystery of Christ cannot be exhausted by any single liturgical tradition. From the very beginning, therefore, this richness found expression among various peoples and cultures in ways that are characterized by a wonderful diversity and complementarity. So, by what criterion does the Church assure uh, this uh, you know, unity in the midst of this plurality. And uh, from the Catechism again, it is fidelity to the apostolic tradition. That is the communion in the faith and in the sacraments received from the apostles, a communion that is both signified and guaranteed by apostolic succession. Now, if you know my story, uh, as a convert, it was the apostolic succession that was the intellectual linchpin uh, of my conversion. It's precisely because the church is Catholic and apostolic that she can integrate into her unity, or her oneness, the authentic riches of all these various rites. And it seems to me that the you know if the one and only church can embrace 23 different Eastern liturgical rites, then she, surely she can support two expressions of the one Roman rite. Okay, so Pope Francis, call your office. Now, one of the highlights of my visit down under was spending some quality time with the priests 
of the Brisbane Oratory and Formation. They're the ones that brought me down in the first place. And they're attached to a local parish where they celebrate both uh, forms of the, of the Latin Rite. Uh, and they're served there by young men who are members of, of a local young adult group. And, you know, I complimented them on their liturgy and on their community. And, and one of the, um, you know, they're, because their they're ordinary mass, the way that it's celebrated is just as inspiring as the extraordinary form. And, and when, when I complimented them, one of the young men said, you know, are we unique or have you encountered similar situations in North America? And I replied that I had, in fact, and, and many times. But, you know, I couldn't say whether it was a general trend or just, you know, uh, um, typical of the kind of parish that would have me come and speak in the first place. But the point is I have traveled throughout the United States and Canada and outside of North America. And in the process, I've um, encountered some common traits in those parishes that celebrate both forms of the Mass. They tend to have a lot of lay involvement and and Eucharistic adoration, uh, often perpetual, and long lines for confession and a refreshingly reverent celebration of the the new mass as well as a genuine sense of community. And, you know, like most human endeavors, um, there's usually a core group that does the lion's share of the work, right? There's the 80-20 rule that, that uh, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. But my experience suggests that when, when lay people are willing to... Um, demonstrate their desire for a more reverent liturgy. We're talking about the 20% here. And the clergy are responsive that there follows a positive reaction from the 80%, right, from the community at large. And, and I think the fact that the initiative comes from below, so to speak, is the key. Because most people don't like change in the first place, and they really don't like to have it imposed on them. But, you know, when ordinary parishioners, you know, spontaneously initiate a return to reverence, it tends to be contagious. And, and I think the, the reason why is that, you know, first off, many Catholics secretly long for it. And secondly, I think it, it just strikes a chord even in those who, you know, quote unquote, don't know what they're missing. But it's the only explanation I can give to the way that Benedict XVI was, um, you know, the, the mainstream Catholic bloggers just made him a hero um, for, for his celebration of the ordinary form of the Mass. You know, uh, Catholics who would never dream of assisting at a traditional Mass were naturally drawn to his more traditional liturgical style, if you will. And, of course, the secret is he didn't have any style at all. You know, he, just, he was just simply following the rubrics, you know, with the reverence, with the, the docility of, of a celebrant that knows that the Mass isn't about him, nor, for that matter, is it about the people, it's about all of us worshiping God, uh, you know, the, the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Now, in my humble opinion, it's, it's the failure of priests and bishops to follow Benedict's example that explains why so many young Catholics are leaving the church. Because attempts to make the Mass, you know, more relevant to the kids just underlines the fact that the world can do entertainment better than your youth director can. You know, a lot better. But we have something... But we have something unique. There's something to give. You know, it's only the Holy Mass that provides the opportunity to, to participate with all the angels and saints in the heavenly liturgy. That, as Scott Hahn is, is fond of saying, Mass is heaven on earth. And that's where the emphasis must be, regardless of the form being celebrated. I mean, 
I've seen the evidence with my own eyes again and again. And, uh, you know, no doubt there's a place for pep talks and pop songs in the lives of young people, just not at mass. Okay, I'm I'm getting wildly off the rails here. I said that I was going to um, talk about um, ways that you can um, spark a liturgical renewal, things that you can do that Father can do, primarily it's about the priest, uh, in his celebration of the ordinary form of the Mass and do them, you know, right away this Sunday. Stuff that doesn't require, um, you know, a, a lot of preparation or, or money or training or anything. Just by exercising options that are legitimately available to him within the structure of the general instruction of the Roman Missal. Okay, so here's the, here's the 10 tips. I won't be able to get through them all uh, before the break, but um, number one. Father can read or chant the entrance and communion antiphons, right? Every Mass has, an, has a, an entrance antiphon and a communion antiphon. And sometimes you'll hear them read out at, at daily Mass, sometimes not, but you almost never hear them on Sunday because of the four-hymn sandwich. Um, <laughs> I was a professional musician at one point in my checkered career, and when I came into the church, I was immediately drafted into the quote-unquote music ministry, so I know from where I speak that, um, you know, that there was the four hymns, the entrance hymn, the offertory, the communion hymn, and the recessional are not actually part of the Mass. Although they can optionally take the place of those antiphons, um, those antiphons actually are very moving and deserve their place. Right? Going to come back to the other nine of these tips when we return for No Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us. Thanks, and welcome back. Uh, No-Nonsense Catholic, we were just going through uh, my list of 10 things that uh, the priest can do to jumpstart a liturgical renewal in your parish. And the first is that Father can read or chant the entrance and communion antiphons. All right, that's number one. Number two, uh, Father can choose to use penitential rite A. This is the one that includes the entire confidior, followed by the absolution, followed by the Kyrie. That is the option that's most in keeping with the, you know, 1,000-plus tradition of the Latin Church. Number three, we were given a great gift in 2010 with the corrected translation of the English for the Novus Ordo Mise. And the conventional translation before, you know, uh, at um, invitations to prayer and before readings is brethren. The option is brothers and sisters. Okay, but the norm is brethren. The option is brothers and sisters. Sisters and brothers is an abuse. But, uh, but Father can choose to use brethren and encourage the other readers uh, to do that as well. Uh, let's see. Number four here, pray um, Eucharistic prayer number one, so-called. Eucharistic prayer number one, in its entirety with the litany of saints, is the English translation of the Roman canon, which for more than a thousand years was the only Eucharistic prayer in the Latin rite, okay? Uh, number five, uh, and you see this at the traditional Mass, and some notable sort of priests do it, but you can encourage Father to do this, to hold his thumbs and forefingers together um, from the consecration until the ablutions to show respect for the real presence 
and, and to avoid scattering any particles of the Eucharist. This is an ancient uh, tradition, and it's certainly easy to incorporate here, and a tangible sign of the belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Number six, we are we're human beings. We're creatures of uh, flesh and spirit, and you know we, we need to use the smells and bells. Okay, so incense whenever it's appropriate. Number seven, again, it's, it's the priest's attitude. If, if the priest would simply bow profoundly, that is to say noticeably, over the host and chalice when he's reciting the words of consecration, slowly and deliberately, that alone go a long way towards helping to foster that belief in the real presence. Number eight, and this might be the, the most, or really the only controversial one on the list, which is to omit the invitation to share the sign of peace. Okay? It's entirely optional. I know that you, you see it virtually everywhere, but the fact of the matter is the Pax Christe, that, that prayer has been part of the Mass you know, for millennia. But uh, the people in the nave uh, taking time out to, to shake hands with their neighbor, that is a modern novelty from the 1970s and completely optional. And so all the priest has to do is just not do it. Uh, number nine is when he's doing the ablutions to do them you know, meticulously and the tr- in the traditional manner with the wine and then the water and the wine again. Again, it's, it's just a, a, a ritual expression of our you know, uh, belief in the real presence. And finally, to bow his head at the holy name of Jesus. And, or, and even at the, the names of all the divine persons, Mary, the saint of the day, but especially at the holy name of Jesus, and instruct the, the, the altar servers and the readers to do the same. Right? When, when, the, when you go to the uh, traditional Mass, you'll see that, the priest giving the uh, homily, and he'll say the name of Jesus, and you know, he's wearing his uh, the little hat, little bread, and he'll tip his hat and and bow his head, and all the servers will, will nod their heads as well at the holy name of Jesus. Okay? These are options that are all permitted by the Novus Ordo rubrics, and all depend primarily on the priest. You only have to convince one person that it's a good idea. And with the exception of the use of incense and the traditional ablutions, um, which might require, I, I guess, some training of the servers, although they should know these things already, uh, none of these suggestions, as I, as I mentioned before, none of them entail any special permission, any preparation or, or expense, and they shouldn't be the cause of, of any division or controversy. But conspicuous reverence can be the spark that lights a fire of authentic liturgical renewal at your parish, especially if it's done consistently. And that is no nonsense. All right, uh, kind of a final thing here. Um, my wife Betty and I had the pleasure of uh, sharing the dinner table with Tim and Valerie Staples uh, last Friday night. It's a speaker's dinner for a local uh, Catholic homeschooling conference. And it was great catching up with the, with the Staples. Um, we met Tim when I was coming into the church back in the 90s. And then, of course, Tim and I worked uh, together at St. Joseph Communications doing apologetics and producing radio for EWTN and whatnot for, for many years. And... Um, you know, at, at one point in our conversation, Pope Francis came up, and, and, and I said, um, you know, well, he is the Pope. I don't, I don't remember exactly what we were talking about. I said, well, he is the Pope. And Tim said, I'm glad to hear you say that, uh, referring to his former uh, Catholic Answers colleague, Pat Coffin, 
who has taken up the, the rather bizarre position that Pope Francis is not the Pope because Benedict XVI is still really the Pope. Right? This position has been dubbed Benevacantism because it's kind of the weird cousin of, of Sedevacantism, which is the theory that uh, posits that a Pope who's a, a manifest heretic thereby automatically loses the papal dignity and falls from his office. Right? So the, the, most Sedevacantists contend that the Second Vatican Council itself is heretical, and so all the popes since the council, including Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis, are all thereby unmasked as manifest heretics who have fallen from the papacy. And so we haven't had a, a valid pope for more than half a century. Now, the Benedictists don't hold to that theory, but they agree that Jorge Bergoglio was not the pope. Uh, and they say this is due to some irregularity um, in Benedict XVI's resignation, some uh, uh, um, hiccup in canon law. And therefore, uh, uh, since Benedict didn't properly resign, um, uh, therefore, the election of Pope Francis was invalid because technically Benedict XVI was and is still the Pope. Now, I've addressed both of these topics uh, on this program. And I, most recently, I think I did an episode in February of this year called Is Benedict Still Pope? So if you're interested in the arguments, you can go there. But uh, I, I don't intend to rehearse uh, those same arguments again today. But I ran across an article by Eric Sammons, a friend of this program, just the other day, uh, that eloquently pointed out the spiritual danger of holding either of these positions. And it's worth repeating. You know, a lot of folks today talk about being red-pilled, right, which is an allusion to the movie The Matrix and, and refers to becoming in, becoming enlightened on some previously unknown truth about reality, especially some truth that's difficult to, to accept or, or uh, exposes disillusions. And that's what, you know, the, the Benevacantist crowd is hoping to do to you. Because, you know, the fact is, as Eric Sammons pointed out in his article, and I'll put the URL in the show notes, uh, if you went to a typical parish and asked people coming out of Mass, is Francis the Pope, not only would you get a 100% positive response, but they'd probably think that you're some kind of nut for asking the question in the first place. You know, Francis is the duly elected pope, and virtually everyone, with the obvious exception of the Sedevacantists and the Benevacantists, everyone recognizes him as pope. And that includes Benedict XVI, who resigned his papacy, the cardinals who elected Francis, the worldwide Catholic episcopate, the Catholic faithful around the world, and the entirety of the non-Catholic world, for that matter. And therein lies the, the, the crux of the matter. Catholicism is not an esoteric religion. There isn't one set of rules for the clergy and another for the laity, or there isn't one set of rules for, for the, the rank and file and another for the, for the initiated, okay? Everything you need to know about Catholicism is out in the open, and you can access it online for free. The Bible, the catechism, the, the, the documents of the church. It's called public revelation, because there are no secret teachings. Catholicism is entirely exoteric, right? Secret teachings known to only to a, a privileged few, that's not Christianity, that's Gnosticism. And, and that's what Eric Sammons uh, says in his article. He said, why is rejecting that Francis is Pope so dangerous? Because at its root, it is diametrically opposed to the fundamentals of Catholicism. It is essentially a Gnostic position a belief that a few souls have discovered a special knowledge that most Catholics don't have. 
And he says that the advocates of, you know, the Benevacantism will confidently claim that if you just watch this video or just hear this argument, then you'll see that Francis really isn't Pope. And the corollary that if you don't accept my conclusion, then you must have a hardened heart. And he says, I can't count the number of times I've been told that because I don't subscribe to one of these views, it's because I refuse to consider the arguments or because of cowardice or fear, you know, that it's going to hurt his uh, income or whatever. In other words, he says, it's not possible to simply think the argument is unconvincing. I must be willfully ignoring it. You know, and, and that's the thing. Catholicism is a matter of public relation, not pouring over hours of YouTube videos and, and, and set of Acantus, uh blog spots and, and podcasts. And, and it's a spiritual dead end. And that's, that's his, the most important part of his argument, which echoes what I've been saying all this time. He says, how will the papacy issue, if this is true, how, how will the issue ever be resolved? How will the church ever elect a legitimate pope if every single papal elector is wrong about the current occupant of the chair of St. Peter? And many, if all, were not, you know, or were appointed by an invalid pope in the first place. You know, waiting for a miraculous divine intervention, uh, you know, one that works outside of how God himself set up the hierarchical church, is dangerously close, he says, to the sin of presumption. In the end, both Sedevacantism and, you know, Benevacantism lead to a rejection of the church and the formation of a man-made religion. And then he points out that we've had, you know, we've had troubled times and, and difficult popes in the past, and often that the problems that they created weren't um, resolved for decades. And he says that's the thing, you know, uh, we recognize um, not, you know, uh, um, some some Gnostic idea of secret knowledge, but but that Christ founded a visible church with fallible men in charge, okay? And we have to acknowledge uh, the, the visible leaders of that church and remain in that church and persevere to the end. I'm acquainted with a number of, of people that hold these positions, and in my experience, they're by and large, you know, decent people with their heart in the right place. And I share their frustration about the, the, the difficulties in the church today. But I got to say, I sincerely hope and pray that those who hold the set of a cantist or Ben of a cantist position will find the strength to resign themselves to the current ecclesiastical reality and join their prayers for our current pontiff with those of all faithful Catholics who dearly love Christ and his church. I can tell you right now that he can certainly use them. And that is no nonsense. Okay, well, wrapped up another one. Thank you for listening. We're going to do it all again next week, same time, same station. And until then, I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio saying thank you for listening and may God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>